Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. From Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. In our work, we talk a lot about multinational corporations and supply chains. For most of us, they are placeless, faceless entities. They've got a logo, but most of the time, you don't think about them having a hometown. But in this episode, that's where we're going. York, in the United Kingdom. That's where the factory that manufactures Kit Kat bars for the UK market is located. And it's got a long history in the chocolate trade and was the spot where some key conversations took place around Nestle's decision to drop the Fairtrade certification for the UK Kit Kat bar. Last episode, we broke down the changes and challenges that Fairtrade has faced in the transition from movement to market. Ryan talked to Merlin Preza of Proto-Co-op in Nicaragua, a leader who's been in the movement since the beginning. They talked about Fairtrade from a movement perspective and how complicated that instruction to, quote-unquote, look for the label can get. This episode, we're joined by Joanna Pollard of Fairtrade Yorkshire. She lives not too far from that Nestle factory in York, and she's one of the people who actually sat down with Nestle representatives last summer in the aftermath of their decision to drop Fairtrade certification for their Kit Kat bar. Anna Canning, Fairwell Project's campaign manager, talked with Joanna to catch up on what happened after that decision and the real complexities of her work as a Fairtrade campaigner. Joanna, thanks so much for joining us on For a Better World. Uh, to get started, can you just tell me a little bit about your organization? So I'm the coordinator for Fairtrade Yorkshire. Now, Yorkshire is a region of the United Kingdom with about five and a half million inhabitants. And we have 38 fair trade places in Yorkshire. Um, the fair trade towns movement started in the UK. And um, it, there are more fair trade towns, places, sort of cities, boroughs, zones in the UK than, than in any other country um, at the moment. But it's, it's moving uh, certainly across the US and uh, all around the world, there are fair trade towns. And Fair Trade Yorkshire is just a, an agglomeration of the, the 38 places in Yorkshire that identify as fair trade towns, villages and cities. Oh, wow. Okay. So what does being the coordinator of that entail? Uh, well, basically, um, <laughs> We're a non non profit, um, extremely short uh, staffed organisation. So basically, I pretty much do everything. Um, I'm, I act as a volunteer, um, and my job is to sort of make sure that people are aware of things that are going on within fair trade. And um, I try and bring people together. That's one of my passions, actually, is the idea that lots of people work within fair trade. And they all have a subtly different way of wanting to do it. And so my passion is really to make people understand that whatever we want to do, however we want to campaign for fair trade, that we can be a broad church and we can welcome everybody. So um, I've been a fair trade retailer for 15 years. So I'm really passionate about independent retail that, that really works within fair trade to 
highlight producer stories. So um, within the Fairtrade towns and Fairtrade cities, we have Fairtrade shops and um, schools and universities. So I've worked with, with within schools and universities, development education, charities and those sorts of things. And all of the people that want to achieve a fairer and better world that live in Yorkshire, that's basically my job is to make sure that we're all talking to each other um, and everything that we do is based on the idea that we can build back fairer. Wow, so that sounds amazing. I like that picture of you talking to, you know, everybody sort of building that web of a different kind of economy. Um, how did you get started as a fair trade campaigner then? Um, I started my business 15 years ago. I was actually visiting a friend who lived in Mexico at the time. Joanna's story is similar to that of so many people in the fair trade movement. She was traveling and connected with people making and selling incredible crafts. From there, she developed a small business based around those crafts. But then I fell into a bit of a rabbit hole and discovered all of the other aspects of fair trade and all of these people doing amazing things all over the world. That's amazing. So are you still importing from that group in Mexico to the UK? I'm not, no. Um, the, basically, what I discovered was that we were doing it on such a small scale that the impacts that we could have were not big enough. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the how I've ended up uh, with the Nestle campaign that I'm sure we're going to talk to is that I, I realised that I wasn't strong enough on my own to make enough of an impact but then you go to the other end and you get enormous multinationals and maybe they're too big to be making the right sort of impact and I think there's a middle way. So you I mean you mentioned the Nestle campaign so maybe we should get get to that. <laughs> um, so do you want to just take me back to when you first heard that Nestle was dropping fair trade certification how did you get that news? I was approached uh, by somebody from the Fair Trade Foundation who mentioned it um, quite early on last year, roughly this time last year, sort of February, March time last year, that it was a possibility. Um, I live about 15 miles from the main Nestle um, uh, factory uh, that makes Kit Kats. So I'm, I was basically the closest kind of high profile fair trade person um, to the, the place where the Kit Kats are actually made in the UK. And so I was sort of an obvious person to tackle them about it. So it was mentioned that they were thinking about that moving away from fair trade. And would I, as the coordinator of Fair Trade Yorkshire and as somebody that lives in the in the area, get in touch with them to express our disappointment and to encourage them to think again. Now, at the time, we were just at the very beginning of the pandemic starting, and clearly we didn't have an, any idea what impact it would have on the producers. But by the time Nestle made the announcement that the Kit Kats were definitely going to stop being fair trade last June, we had a real sense of how bad COVID was going to be globally and how important it was that the support that we were giving those producers and that the farmers and workers was some of it they were spending on COVID. And actually, I think had they known that the fair trade premium would be taken away from them, they might have had to make different choices about where the premium went. So you got that news and you went and talked to Nestle before. Did you talk to Nestle before like we had the big announcement in June? No, I'd written them a letter. 
um, and I didn't receive a, a reply to my letter. Um, this is something that's happened one or two times. I know there are several other organisations that have written a letter to Nestle and they Nestle have not replied until it became something that was in the public eye. Um, so that was very disappointing not to, not to have anything at all from them. And so once it became clear that the decision had been made, then the, it was important for me to try and mobilise the support that I knew existed so that we could try and get a petition going and help Nestle understand how important it is for the people that live in the UK and Ireland that like to buy Kit Kats, that like to know that it's their fair trade. Um, and just to try and tap into that groundswell of support for the farmers and workers in, um, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, where the cocoa is made, and in various other places like Fiji, where the sugar is grown. Yeah, so that petition that you mentioned, you ended up getting thousands of signatures on that. How did that get started? And then, like, what was the moment that it really kind of took off? Uh, we had one mad weekend uh, where it went from about 50,000 to about a quarter of a million in the course of two or three days. And that was, to be honest, quite a lot of that was to do with um, thanks to Adju Arando, who is a patron of the Fair Trade Foundation in the UK. She's an actress. She's from Bridgerton. This is before she became you know, a multinational global superstar. She's always been a superstar to us, but she basically pulled some strings and got in touch with some of the people that she knew. So Tandy Newton was a really big person that uh, that she managed to get um, to ask her to retweet uh, the petition. And then we got celebrity chefs like people like Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, who probably isn't that famous in the US, but is very famous in the UK. And people who have lots of followers. And then everybody, there was a momentum building. And then I think it started to go global because Nestle, obviously, being a global company, uh, a multinational company, and there are lots of things that Nestle has done over the years that lots of people have objected to. And so... Some of the people that we were getting on board were people who have really disliked the way Nestle do business. And quite a lot of them were coming on board because they they were cautiously optimistic that having a fair trade brand within Nestle would make them move further towards you know more fair trade brands and disappointed that after 10 years that that was not going to be the case anymore uh, but yes we in, we ended up with 285,000 people signing the petition which was absolutely astonishing um, and I just want to say thank you to everybody who did because it really hit the nail on the head and at the point when we reached 200,000 that's the point that Nestle reached out to me because they wanted to, to have a conversation about um, what they were wanting to do and why it couldn't be done within the fair trade system that they'd been using up until now, um, which, that, you know, obviously I was pleased to meet them and, and pleased to put across my point of view and the, the idea that, it, that coupled with COVID, there'd also been a huge groundswell of support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, obviously, if you believe that Black Lives Matter, then those Black Lives of the people who are growing the cocoa in West Africa 
are some of the lives that matter. And actually, that was one of the key things was that we need to be listening to these people. And if they tell you that they value fair trade above everything else, it's really important that they're listened to and that, that they feel like their opinions matter. Well said. How did that meeting with Nestle go then? We had already anticipated what they were likely to say to us. Uh, it was myself and my predecessor as who, the previous coordinator for Fair Trade Yorkshire who lives round the corner from the Nestle factory in York and whose grandma used to work there. So he had a connection with Nestle, a very strong personal connection with Nestle, which was great. Um, and so, yeah, we, we sat down and had had a, a, the, the conversation and we said we made all our points and they made all their points. Um, one of the things that they said that they would be prepared to consider that we were quite surprised by was guaranteeing the minimum price. Let's talk about price here for a minute. Cocoa beans are traded on the commodity market, similar to other crops like coffee, wheat, corn, etc. It's come up in just about every conversation we've had over the past few episodes just how volatile those prices are. And that's why the fair trade minimum price is a key feature of many fair trade certifications. For most crops, if the market price goes up, then the price fair trade buyers pay goes up too. If the market dips, then there's a minimum floor that the price can't go below. For cocoa beans, the minimum price is $2,400 per metric ton. So the cocoa market prices have been really low. And when Nestle dumped fair trade certification, the Rainforest Alliance label they replaced it with has no minimum price. So Nestle promised to guarantee that minimum price. Sounds like a good deal, right? Hang on. It's going to get more complicated. And then right at the very end, they, they actually honoured that commitment and they have said that they were going to um, to match the, the fair trade minimum price for the next two years. Before the meeting, they hadn't been prepared to let us know what level of fair trade premium equivalent they were prepared to pay and as a direct result of that meeting they told us exactly what they were prepared to pay and went public with it um, within a couple of weeks. That's good to hear. Uh, So now I don't want to go too far into the weeds of pricing (laughs) because that can get confusing but I think it is important to clarify so you said they committed to paying the fair trade minimum price but not the same premium. No, they were prepared to, to match the price and they, they, they committed to matching the price for the next two years. So the first, that's basically two harvests. So the harvests happen in October and then the, the, the uh, contracts are signed then. Okay, so Nestle committed to keep that same minimum price for two harvests. Not bad, but those farmers hadn't just been earning the fair trade minimum price. They, they agreed that they were going to match the fair trade minimum price, but the premium, which the fair trade premium at the moment is $240 a ton, and Nestle were going to be paying $180 a ton. So it's a significant reduction. Two years at the minimum price that they'd been getting. Decent. Premium cut by 25%. Less good. But now here's the wrinkle. In an effort to push back on poverty prices, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, who produced something like two-thirds of the world's cocoa, came together and set their own minimum price. For the harvest season of 2020 through 2021, that minimum price is $2,600 per ton, plus a 400-sum they're calling a living income differential. 
So that promise that Nestle made to pay the fair trade minimum price? Well, by law, they're supposed to be paying more than that fair trade minimum price anyhow. And so actually what Nestle was saying was that effectively they, they were prepared to pay that. And I think that's not necessarily that significant in and of itself, because at that point they knew that that was the price they were probably going to have to pay anyway. Um, but to get it for two years means that if there is a price, a dramatic price drop, then at least we know that they're going to get that next year as well. All right. So by my accounting, if Nestle hadn't dropped fair trade certification, then they'd be paying that $2,600 government minimum price plus the $400 living income differential plus the fair trade premium of $240 per metric ton. Instead, Nestle's cut their premium by 25%. Per a statement from the Fair Trade Foundation, that means a loss of approximately 1.37 million pounds or $1.91 million in premium funds. So all this means that it seems like Nestle might be talking a big game about paying a price that they were already gonna be required to pay and cutting the premium that goes to farmers. Is their commitment to that higher minimum price for the next two years going to outlast the Ivorian government's higher minimum? That's what we'll be waiting to see. When we last talked to Franck and Fortin of the Ivorian Fair Trade Network, they were actually still waiting to hear from Nestle. That that was a thing that I found really interesting in this whole conversation is it seemed like everything that they got from Nestle was really like secondhand from a distant conversation. So can you maybe catch our listeners up to where they're at now and how those conversations are going for them? Right from the very start, Nestle said that it wasn't their responsibility to speak to the Ivorian Fair Trade Network, that uh, they would deal with the individual cooperatives that they bought from, but they wouldn't speak to Reese as a whole. RIS is the acronym for the Ivorian Fair Trade Network, based on the French version of the farmer network's name, Réseau Ivorien du Commerce Équitable. And so what happened was that there was reports that some people were being told different things depending on which cooperative they were working for. And so it became really important to us that, that RIS was represented at the table so that they could be almost like a trade union. They were sitting, representing all of the cooperatives that um, that sold to Nestle, and they had a part to play in this. And so their story about um, the fact that fair trade is so important to them because it, it gives them a voice, it gives them a seat at the table, it gives them a democratic opportunity to shape their own lives. And those things are, are best put by a network like Reese rather than individual cooperatives on a sort of case-by-case -case basis. So then you're saying that you, as the local fair trade group, was able to put pressure on Nestle to actually go to the table with the Farmers Association there? Yes, I feel that, that that's one of the big things. Um, wins of the campaign um, was was that uh, they they were reluctant to speak to them, and we convinced them how important it was that they did. Yeah, that that seems like a big win because obviously you can't negotiate on their behalf, but they can't negotiate on their behalf if they aren't uh, at the table. 
So yes, absolutely. One of the one of the most important things uh, that fair trade is designed to counteract is the idea of these long supply chains where everything gets passed from one one person to the next and everything is sort of done with smoke and mirrors. And one of the key things for fair trade is that you get the two people in the room that need to make the decision and they speak to each other. And that's where the decision is made. And for me, that's that's where fair trade is really good, is that it does give an individual farmer through his his or her collective, through their network, they have that that democratic route to the people who are, are going to be buying the products. Yeah, well, well put. And yeah, that also on the other side of what you say, I think it's really interesting to hear about that role of the larger or associations, right? That Nestle can pick off cooperatives and talk to them one at a time and maybe tell people different things. But it's really, the, if you're going to be dealing with something that big, that you need that association and that strength. Okay, so I have to admit, I'm skeptical of Nestle's pricing commitment. But what Joanna says here seems like a key win. And that victory came from the power of so many people coming together. One person writing a letter to Nestle, they ignored her. Cocoa farmers wanting to meet, they might have blown that off too. But 200,000 signatures? That got Nestle's attention. And in case you're checking the math at home, let me clear this up. When they finally got the meeting, Joanna and Fairtrade Yorkshire presented Nestle with a little over 300,000 signatures calling on Nestle to continue to deal on Fairtrade terms for their UK KitKat bar. 284,000 of them were gathered by Fairtrade Yorkshire and an additional 20,000 came from an independent petition launched by the Cooperative Party. So I have just a couple more questions for you, but one was I didn't realize just how close you are to the actual factory that makes the Kit Kats. Yes. So if you go back to the sort of early 19th century, um, the Quaker cocoa producers, there were three big factories in York and Roundtrees was one of them. Roundtrees was renowned as one of the best employers, certainly the best employer in York and one of the most best employers in the the country. Um, The uh, the idea behind Quakers getting into cocoa was because they were um, they were part of the temperance movement. So they really disliked the idea of people going out and spending their money on alcohol and getting drunk. And so they wanted something that was a bit more wholesome. So they got into cocoa. Um, and they also were some of the first fair trade pioneers, I think, because they were really keen on the idea of, uh, obviously, they were abolitionists, which was a huge thing here. Abolitionists refer here to the people who are advocating to abolish or end the trade-in and enslavement of people. In both the UK and the US, Quakers were at the forefront of that movement. But they wanted to give dignity to the workers in um, other countries who grew the, the products that we were buying here. This goal does get a little more complicated when you look at the history of these Quaker chocolate companies. There's probably an entire episode that could be done on the issues of forced labor and cocoa way back at the turn of the last century. In short, not paying the people who grow cocoa has been baked into the chocolate business model for a very, very long time. But the tradition of business with an ethical focus has also existed here in the community of York. 
they were also really interested in the condition of the working poor in the UK. And they basically built model villages with really good housing and they provided incredible benefits for their staff. Um, and it was a place that people really wanted to work. Nestle bought the historic Roundtree Confectionery brand in 1988. It was a controversial deal with a Labour Party lawmaker describing it as, quote, the sad but inevitable result of the government's refusal to defend British industry against foreign predators. One of the best moments uh, when I was running the, the petition uh, to keep Kit Kat Fair Trade was that the great-great-granddaughter of Henry Roundtree signed it and left me a lovely message saying how disappointed her great-great-grandfather and, and all of the family would have been to see Nestle abandon fair trade for Kit Kats because the philosophy of her family when they were running the, the factory was always that it was people first. It was about making sure that we looked after the workers and the, and the farmers and, and that people benefited from it. And so it's a really great legacy that the, uh, the Roundtree's family have had in York. So how has all this series of events changed how you approach your work as a fair trade campaigner? The best thing about it has been being able to bring in lots of different people from lots of different philosophies within trade justice and fair trade. It wasn't just a case of um, the very narrow focus of fair, the fair trade mark on products like cocoa and chocolate and coffee, but something that fits into the wider framework of justice and global equality and climate change. And just it really made me believe that we're all connected. So how has this decision by Nestle changed your thoughts, if it has changed them, on the role of multinationals in fair trade? Before I got heavily involved in this campaign, um, I had sort of a healthy scepticism about whether multinationals could be trusted with fair trade marks. Because if you find a product with a fair trade mark on, um, particularly if it's done through mass balance. Is there a sound effect we can play for when we get deep into certification nerdery? Because we should be playing that now. Here's what mass balance means. In the chocolate industry, cocoa beans come from lots of farmers and get bagged up, ground, and then otherwise processed. Certifiers track how much raw cocoa goes in one end of the processing. Say it's 100 tons, and 10% of that was bought from fair trade farmers on fair trade terms. All those cocoa beans, fair trade and not fair trade, get dumped together and ground up. On the other side, the processor can sell 10% of what comes out as fair trade. Is that bar that comes out made with beans that came from a fair trade farmer? Not necessarily. So actually, you could be buying something that's got a fair trade mark on that doesn't contain any fair trade chocolate. This isn't just a fair trade thing, by the way. Many ethical certifications work this way, although not all of them. The reason is that it's a whole lot easier than shutting down the entire production line to keep just a few farmers' products separate from all the rest. Joanna is not alone in being skeptical. Mass balance allows big traders to ramp up their fair trade purchases without completely altering their supply chains. And whether that's a good thing or a cop-out has long been a controversial topic. We've actually got reports on our website to go into this in a lot more depth and detail which labels allow for mass balance and which prioritize transparent traceability. 
As an extra aside, this is not how organic certification works. Organic ingredients must be segregated from conventional at every step of processing. That was always something that didn't sit well with me. The most important thing for me was being able to speak to the farmers direct because they grow a product and they put it in a sack and they sell it. So the the key thing for me was when I got to speak to the farmers and basically they're in a situation where they grow a crop, they put it in a sack, they put it on a ship, they get the money for it and they almost don't care where it goes. Um, And so actually my preconceived ideas that it was really important that when I pick up a product that I know that that is fair trade. Um, That's useful, but not the whole story. And so for me, there's definitely a mix. So we need dedicated fair trade organizations. We need campaigning organizations, but we need those campaigning organizations to have somebody to go to, to say, look, you buy enormous volumes of cocoa. It is really important that you are not profiting off the backs of very, very poor farmers. And so what we need to do is to say, these are the minimum conditions and prices that these people need to live a healthy and successful life and it is important that you pay this and if it means that the shareholders have to take 10% less that's fine because it's more important that people have a better standard of living than that your CEO buys his third yacht. (laughs) Indeed Um, I mean that seems like that has been sort of the model that fair trade campaigning has been working on for a number of years. And, you know, I mean, it was campaigners that first got Nestle to go fair trade for that Kit Kat bar in the first place. It wasn't that their CEO woke up, woke up one morning and had a realization. Do you, do you feel like there is a, a change in that model that should happen going forward? Or is this, sort of an unlucky situation, but the fundamentals remain? Um, I think there is definitely a need for a mix. Basically, we have two choices. At the moment, we have a few very large organisations that buy most cocoa. And so we either make those very large organisations more ethical, or we make the very ethical organisations bigger. And actually, there's room for both. So arguably, the very large organizations need to get smaller and the very ethical organizations need to get bigger. And we meet in the middle where everybody's ethical and everybody's a decent size and everybody makes enough money to survive. Um, I'm a very big fan of donut economics, the idea that there are limits, there are outer limits and inner limits. Donut economics actually has very little to do with sugary snacks. Instead, it's a metaphor for thinking about our economic activities, as spelled out in a book by Kate Raworth. Instead of picturing the economy as some sort of arrow pointing upwards towards endless, unfettered growth, this model suggests that there's a sweet spot between meeting everyone's needs and exceeding the boundaries of the planet we live on. And if we manage to raise everybody up to the minimum and bring in the people who are doing too much, who are making too much money, who are exploiting people and planet too much, if we work within the donut, 
everybody can have a really good life. And I think there's definitely room for a bit of both, really. I think at the moment the mix isn't quite right um, and the people with the power have still got too much power. Um, But we, as campaigners, as consumers, it's one of our roles to start working with the organisations that are ethical and make sure that we're buying from them and make sure that we're supporting them when they want to do good things. Yeah, I mean, I think that that distinction that you just made there, right, that within chocolate you have, and on the one end, farmers are making like a dollar a day. And on the other end, you're talking about, you know, the possibility of owning a third yacht or whatever that really high-end thing is. That's a big divide there between those two points. So yeah, it seems like there's a lot of space in the middle. So I just have one more question and hopefully our internet lasts through it all. Um, What would a truly fair chocolate trade look like to you? One of the key things going forward is to put more value in the areas where the cocoa is grown. So at the moment, um, in the last couple of years, Ghana in particular has managed to add a lot of value to the supply chain in cocoa by adding processing facilities. And so about 50% of the cocoa that leaves Ghana doesn't leave as bags of beans. It leaves as cocoa paste. And so I think one of the key ways that we can move forward and for it to be fairer and for us to feel like we've got a connection and a sustainable connection to the way that our food is grown and made is for processing to be moved into those countries and for the infrastructure to be there so that they can make a a chocolate bar from bean to bar in the same way as a lot of very, very small artisanal chocolatiers do. If you can do that in country at scale and then instead of putting um, a boatload of cocoa beans and sending that to the UK, or Germany or wherever to be turned into um, chocolate, you can add much more value to those countries. Um, And it needn't make it that much more expensive either. So for me, the fairest way is for me to be able to pick up a bar of chocolate in my local shop or supermarket and to know that the whole of that bar was made in the country that it says that, that where the cocoa was grown. I mean, it seems in some ways like a real progression of what we've been talking about as fair trade, right? That I got started in fair trade a number of years ago working in coffee, actually. And one of the things we talked about then was, you know, cutting out the various middlemen and you know, all of those anonymous steps along the way. And in some ways, what you're talking about is exactly that, cutting out some of those intermediaries who are then skimming off in the middle between the person who buys the chocolate bar and the person who makes it. We are at the very beginning, really, of a fair trade journey. The fair trade mark's only 25 years old in the UK. We can move forward and the next century will be really key. Uh, The idea that it's going to happen overnight, that's not going to happen. We need to be addressing the things that are problems now. And into the future, we can see a, a, a world where 
cocoa is uh, something that's that's grown and produced and turned into chocolate bars in Ghana, and they have complete control over that situation. Right now, making it fairer for as many people as possible, doing the most good for the most people is the most important thing right now within cocoa. Yeah, and the good news is there's people working. I feel like there are people who are working on each piece of that. Yes, absolutely. I think, and I think, I think we all have our part to play in that. But I think one of the most important things is, as consumers, we need to understand what the fair trademark is and what it isn't. Um, and the idea that the fair trademark means that it's perfect, um, it means that it's considerably better than something that doesn't have the fair trademark. And that's where we are right now, is that if you have a choice between a chocolate bar that does or doesn't have the fair trademark, buying the one with the fair trademark has something very specific about it. And that's why you buy it. When I first reached out to Joanna to interview her, I hadn't entirely put together the significance of her location. She's organizing her community right in the backyard of the Nestle factory that manufactures the Kit Kat bars we've been talking about over the past few episodes. That town, York, has a long history in the British chocolate industry. Indeed, some of the old Quaker companies remain big brands in the chocolate industry. Cadbury's, for example. Not only do those brand names persist, their business models do too. Forced and child labor was a problem way back in those days as well. The exploitation is baked into the business model. It's not just a few bad actors. Instead, the whole system needs an overhaul. Joanna found a way to tap into her community's expectations for how a corporation should behave and got international attention for a decision that could have otherwise gotten swept under the rug. We need more of this kind of international solidarity and support. And it also makes clear that we need more than awareness raising and concerned people to hold corporations accountable. All of you listening have had so many positive things to say about this podcast since we've released the first episode. But in among that, the one critique I've heard time and again is, but what are we supposed to do? I get it. We've been unwrapping the complexities of these ingredients that make up a common everyday chocolate bar. The complexities that lay behind our everyday decisions. What's the solution? Anna's conversation with Joanna offers an answer, or really, so many answers. We need people building new and small-scale ethical enterprises, and we need people to support them. We need people to pressure large corporations and hold them to be accountable. We need people to organize in their own communities and people to sign on to their petitions and make phone calls. And we need to vote for lawmakers and hold them to making rules that push back on the trends of corporate consolidation and exploitation. We need to do all of these things, and each of us has a role to play. Through her campaigning, Joanna was able to bring Nestle to the table to negotiate with cocoa farmers. Will they keep their commitments? Or will it be just another in their string of empty pledges? That remains to be seen. Thanks for joining us on For a Better World. Stay tuned for our next episodes, where we'll be talking to some of the people actively working to hold Nestle accountable for their supply chains. Next time, we'll talk to Terry Collingsworth, the human rights lawyer who has sued Nestle all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of a group of men who were forced into child labor in their cocoa supply chains. And if you want to do something before then, hop over to our website, fairworldproject.org, where we've got a petition outlining what the big chocolate companies need to do to address the root causes of that child labor. 
We'll have the link in the show notes. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fairworld Project. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Head to our website, fairworldproject.org, to sign up for our newsletter. It's the best way to stay in the loop with our work and take action to support the movements you hear about on this show. Fairworld Project is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on donations to keep our work going. If you liked what you heard or learned something new, consider becoming a monthly donor. Your contributions help us continue to bring stories like these from around the globe. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay up to date between episodes. For a Better World is made possible by our small but mighty team. Our show is edited by Stephanie DeLeon, Zeke, Jenica Cadill is our producer, Anna Canning is our scriptwriter, our storytellers are Ryan Zinn and Anna Canning, our music was composed by Mark Robertson, and I'm your host and the executive director of Fairworld Project, Dana Geffner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.